to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Veronica Garcia, the lead organizer of Wealth Reclamation Academy of Practitioners. Veronica, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me, Steve. Uh, I heard about your work from a mutual friend, and we had a chance to talk ahead of this recording about some of it, and I'm just really excited to get into the substance of what you're doing and how that really impacts all of us working in the charitable sector, philanthropy, nonprofits, all of it. Uh, but before we dive into some of those specifics, could you just explain a little bit more about RAP and what your work is there? Yes, uh, the Wealth Reclamation Academy of Practitioners is an effort to uh, organize primarily grassroots fundraisers uh, to transform philanthropy. Uh, we are exploring traditional philanthropy as most of us recognize it uh, from a couple of new angles with our approach. Uh, the primary angle being really uh, seeking to understand that uh, so much of the wealth that moves through traditional forms of philanthropy results from uh, an extraction, an extraction mm -hmm. of natural resources and labor. Uh, and so the Wealth Reclamation seeks to really start our understanding of the wealth moving through philanthropy from that perspective, uh, and then go from there to figure out how we bring more equity, equity and sustainability to, uh, to the distribution, the redistribution of that accumulated wealth. And I think many of us have been reading the news and understanding the increasing disparity of wealth in the United States economy in particular, but, you know, kind of globally as a result of the U.S. forces there, um, have been hearing more about the the, um, the amount that this has grown with a very few people, uh, uh, the assets at their disposal versus the rest of us and how that's changed, even as just the last couple of years since the pandemic and other things. But you've been involved in this work. Uh, maybe not as as Wealth Reclamation Academy of Practitioners, but there was lead up to help you understand some of those challenges and what's going on. Uh, can you talk us through a little bit of that background of how you came into this space? Yes, I've been fundraising uh, in the nonprofit space probably for, who I'd say almost two decades now. Uh, and very early on in my efforts to fundraise, I began to understand a lot of the tensions and dynamics that fundraisers today are, uh, are pretty clear about. And so, um, the gist of it is that as we come to understand fundraising, there aren't enough resources in that system for all of us who pursue funding. Uh, to actually receive what we need to to carry out our works in the nonprofit uh, community building space. And so as I came into a, a working understanding of these tension points, um, I began to question myself, is there a different way that we can be doing this work? Uh, over the course of my uh, my experience and activities in traditional fundraising, I also came into all kinds of uh, research and surveying um, that has come about during that time that tells us that historically fundraising is one of the most unsustainable 
positions in our nonprofit space. And so all of these things left me inquiring about why, why is that? Where do these mm -hmm. dynamics stem from? Um, I learned my fundraising from an institution called the Grassroots Institute for Fundraising Training. Uh, or gift. That organization uh, has since shuttered. Uh, they are no longer in operation. But it was a 30-year-old institution that sought out to uh, increase uh, diversity and representation from traditionally marginalized communities, primarily people of color, in the fundraising and philanthropy space. Uh, and 30 years worth of gifts work that we've actually seen some real shifts in representation in the space. What we have not seen, and, and one of the things that RAP's organizing is really working to, um, to explore in new ways, is a real shift in the, uh, the resources that are coming into the space and how those resources, again, are distributed. So we can increase representation, uh, and leadership, but that doesn't necessarily improve uh, the access that, that we have to work-sustaining resources in traditional fundraising. Right, and, and sustaining resources for the individuals that are involved in it. And I think your reframing of this uh, in terms of wealth reclamation versus gift or you know giving kinds of thinking is a really important uh, framework. I want to get back to that in just a moment, but I want to start with that uh, um, comment you made earlier about the turnover and transition in um, the field of folks that do resource development for charities. Uh, fundraisers is a word that gets thrown around, but I think that's another question of how we talk about the, the need and the practice of that work. But you've seen this and I've seen this where organizations put out a job description with a thought of, you know, we need you to raise X number of dollars in whatever way makes sense. And we need you to do it yesterday. And if you're not successful yesterday, then it's somehow on you and we're going to end this relationship and hire somebody else. And the cycle continues and the cycle <laughs> continues. Um, how did you see that kind of, and or still do see, at least I, I think here, um, that challenge of the people involved having these uh, um, expectations and barriers about what it means to to have resources come to support this work and and the the burden that kind of casts on people's shoulders well um you know first and foremost what we know about the support that uh, fundraisers or development staff receive just within the context of their organization uh, is that oftentimes that support, uh, in some cases more formally described as supervision, mm -hmm. uh, is oftentimes inadequate because the people providing uh, that support or supervision don't necessarily themselves have uh, any substantial experience in fundraising or philanthropy. Um, and so just internal to an organization, uh, we can explore all of the different ways that fundraisers and development staff uh, don't don't have enough um, interpersonal support. Um, but oftentimes we just also just don't have the resources to access the types of, of resources and informative uh, journals, the periodicals, the databases mm -hmm. uh, that some of the larger nonprofit kind of uh, corporate entities are able to access. And so those types of under uh, resource situations make our roles that much more challenging. At the end of the day, one of the biggest 
dynamics that I think challenges uh, traditional fundraisers uh, is this idea that, like you said, we, we have all we need and our job is just to get out there and organize the people and the resources. Um, but in all reality, we, we don't have a lot of guidance in how to do that, especially as you point out, during a time when we see these economic uh, disparities enhancing. Right. Um, the average folk, the average people are, are, have less and less access uh, to those places where wealth is is being held exclusively. And so um, th those are the dynamics that we're attempting to address. Um, and then, you know, again, I think another challenge I can point to is that historically in working with um, with folks who are attempting to to develop their skill set in fundraising is this connection to the idea that uh, by fundraising, we are begging for money. Right. Uh, that's a really big obstacle to overcome for most folks. That's that's a pretty soul sucking tension to hold if you can't move beyond that. And so, a big part of the the political framework that we're wanting to shift at RAP is this idea that somehow the money that we are working, the money and the resources that we are working to organize does not belong to us collectively to begin with. So we want to address that fact and, yeah. and explore this idea that, that in fact, it already belongs to us. So we're not begging for its return. We're actually working to, and here's where we use the word reclaim, uh, but we also use rehabilitate, rehabilitate oh. the relationships or the bonds that have been broken that actually sustain the economic inequity we're challenged by. Uh, I, I don't know that our, in our earlier conversation, I heard the word rehabilitate. That's another really interesting way of thinking about it. But it does give us that opening to come back to this concept of, you know, philanthropy, uh, where we knock on the doors of people who have uh, lots of resources, and they are sort of in this position of deciding who is most worthy of their largesse. And then, you know, some money gets distributed and some doesn't. And, and we go on and repeat this cycle for a while, as opposed to this concept of reclamation or rehabilitation of that's a community resource that has been inappropriately allocated, uh, you know, however we want to say, you know, that how it was captured, you know, I, I think that there's lots of ways that we could talk about that, but the, the end result of it all being the same, that it's not currently under the control of the majority of people. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that it maybe perhaps ought to be reclaimed for those people to then have these practitioners decide how are we going to allocate additional resources, different resources. So um, the the work of a wealth reclamation practitioner, that, that thought is, is so Im impressive and important to me. Um, was there a, a larger group of people that, that kind of worked through this as you kind of saw what gift had closed up and, and how this would move forward? Or how did you come up with, with framing this concept in that way? Absolutely. There, there was a lot of discussion among a core community of us who are really working to, uh, to bring to light and define some of these ideas and RAP's vision in particular. A lot of discussion about what we would call ourselves. And a lot of that discussion was grounded in really trying to identify what it was we were trying to center, what what was the the approach that we were going to come at this work with. And we came up with reclamation, 
um, in part because there's actually some connection to other uh, fields of practice, other areas of study that exist to, um, to well, rehabilitate mm -hmm. the harms that have been caused in large part by capitalistic undertaking. So for example, there's an area of study um, called land reclamation. Uh, there's another area of study called water reclamation. And so um, Rab doesn't necessarily agree with all of the ways that these, these fields and studies take shape and form. But at the end of the day, these, these focus areas are really centered again on rehabilitating uh, as much as possible, working to undo the gravest harm uh, that has taken uh, place, that has impacted these different ecosystems with regards to kind of the economic status quo. And so that was how we came at Reclamation, I think, early on. And we also began to make the connection to this idea of rehabilitation. So if we're working to reclaim something uh, and, and doing that through a rehabilitative approach, there were two main points that we wanted to, uh, to kind of touch with this rehabilitative approach. The first was this idea that so much of the service work that a lot of our nonprofit organizations are doing uh, out on the front lines in community is a response to the harms that have happened via the economic inequity, severe economic inequity. So we actually have, our work is actually rehabilitative work, striving to actually address, acknowledge, and as much as possible undo the harm, restore the health and vitality of our communities in places where we don't have access to enough education, enough health care, enough housing, enough food, uh, you know, all of those sorts of, of basic necessities. And then the other point of rehabilitation as, as we think about RAP's framework is this vision that we have to begin to close the traditional gap between the donor and the fundraiser. That's a very natural hierarchy that existed, that has existed in, in fundraising and the philanthropic space. And so we recognize that so much of the conflict and tension uh, in philanthropy and in fundraising comes from that historical divide between these two essential roles in the equation. And so as a form of rehabilitation, what we want to do is actually develop what we call the resource mobilizer practitioner. And so the resource mobilizer uh, is in, in many cases today, a person who has come up like myself as a fundraiser. Uh, I spent a lot of years learning how to ask for money and getting better at asking for money as a fundraiser, trying to get more effective in my practice. Today, I am working to transform my own practice to that of a resource mobilizer, uh, somebody who is really emphasizing the relationship and, and that relational bond, restoring and rehabilitating these relational bonds uh, as the focus of our work. We believe that once we restore these relational connections and bonds, the resources will very naturally flow back through those restored connections. So that's the, our other point of, of rehabilitation as we think about it is how do we rehabilitate this traditional divide between donor and fundraiser and our proposal is that we do that by presenting the resource mobilizer role. Anybody 
can actually be a resource mobilizer mm -hmm. once you are practicing according to the the basic set of values um, that that we today commit to. And so it's really exciting that we actually have been able uh, thus far. Uh, our earliest organizing work has recruited both traditional fundraisers and donors that are now seeking to actually develop their practice as resource mobilizers, again, in an effort to, to, to close that gap or that divide between those two roles. So uh, this to me is just so exciting. And I want to ask, though, the, the, I assume there's going to be some people out there going, um, the current state of affairs feels so very different from this in most people's practices when they're talking about their uh, fund development work, uh, where you do go to, let's say, a uh, foundation or other philanthropic institution like that, uh, and you put together your case for support, and, and you have these conversations, and then they inevitably come back to you and say, well, we just didn't have enough to meet all the needs that were applied for. We loved you, but we, you know, you didn't make this particular cut because there's just not enough. And I think challenging that very assumption of is there enough is, is such an important part of this conversation. And where is the enough being distributed right now? Because some of it is certainly sitting in endowments with foundations um, not being used today. Um, some of it is sitting in um, private uh, parties, hands, uh, corporations, people, whatever, um, not being used for the needs of today. But when we hear that from a, uh, a traditional donor of, you know, gosh, there's just so many needs and there's not enough. How do you begin that conversation about this idea of rehabilitation to move past that thought a little bit and have them in as a partner in what you're talking about? Well, one of our earliest approaches at RAP has been to, um, to orient folks through uh, just a very brief introduction to our economic system. Oh, okay. And so contextualized within a broader economic system, if we were to take philanthropy as a sliver uh, of that system, one, one piece of that system, we describe philanthropy as essentially representing the excess. It's the surplus in our economic system. Uh, and that's that's traditionally how most givers engage with the the resources that they set aside to participate in philanthropy with. And so if we think about our slice of the pie essentially representing our economic excess from RAP's perspective, this provides a great opportunity to introduce some experimentation. There are so many signs in the world around us today that our economic system globally is transforming with or without us. Right. <laughs> Whether or not we agree to participate, <laughs> the system around us is such that uh, there are just all kinds of cracks that are emerging. And so we see the, the system, the global system moving uh, in constant motion. And so at RAP, we believe that we we have to actually, as the people, engage this transformative time to begin visioning and mapping out what a more viable, equitable, and sustainable economic system could look like. Given that our work in the space historically, again, is to provide for the needs of community, uh, provide for the needs of community that are not otherwise provided for either through the market, the free open market, or through the government. 
um, it, it just makes sense that this is going to be the space where we are going to engage in economic experimentation in all the ways. Um, so that's, that's one of the ways that we start the conversation, um, especially with, I would say, donors that are uh, integrated in, in the more traditional uh, philanthropic institution. And it's actually, we, we have come to recognize that it's not very difficult um, with the, the prospective resource mobilizers that RAP is courting. It is not difficult to make the case for this idea, this notion that the global economic system is in transformation. And this is a time for all of us to decide how we want to line ourselves up around that transformative potential. And so that I'd say that that's probably the most powerful message that RAP is bringing today. Um, beyond that, once we can bring folks into our network, uh, we're really committed to providing a lot of the training, coaching, technical assistance, and support to help folks begin to uncover the doing part. How do you actually activate uh, some of those ideas and visioning? And I, I want to dig a little more on that in just a moment, too, but I, I want to address, I think, some probably concerns that might be raised about where things are today in the transfer of wealth and where things are going, because even some of the money that is coming into traditional philanthropy, as it were, um, is being filtered in new ways, most notably donor advised funds, where um, there's, I think, some perverse incentives within uh, community foundations and uh, other organizations like uh, Schwab Charitable and, and mm -hmm. Fidelity Charitable, those folks, uh, to not disperse that money, although technically it was a charitable contribution when it was made. Um, uh, you know, that uh, the the wealth management fees, the, the fees from holding on to that money a little bit longer is an incentive to actually take charitable money and not move it out. And that is like, wait a minute, is our, how do we have that conversation with people about um, technically that's supposed to be money that's available to uh, address some of the disparities and needs that were caused by this system. But um, more of it is becoming uh, accumulated in places that are harder to see. And, and that's a challenging conversation to have with your local community foundation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things I can point to is I, I just mentioned uh, a moment ago that anyone can become a resource mobilizer. Yeah. Uh, and, and all that it takes at this point is a commitment to uh, to just a handful of values that RAP espouses. One of those values, there are six actual value points, one of those values, uh, and they come out of the Just Transition Framework. Uh, for anyone who's familiar with that, if you're not, I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, but one of those values is this idea of restoring democratic control, uh, democratic decision-making, power by the people for the people. And so that's one of the visions we embrace as, as the future, as part of the future that we're aiming for. And so I think in describing kind of setting up just context for folks in our space, that is exactly the dynamics that you're describing is part of that introduction to philanthropy as an economic system, that starting conversation um, that we want to engage folks in. And so I would say that most of the work that we do in this space, I'd say traditional fundraising and development, um, there isn't a real organized critique 
to that work and, and yeah. the way that that work happens, the systems and processes that, that, uh, that activate that work. Uh, there have been efforts, no doubt, historically across time, there have been efforts by communities and networks who, who, you know, who attempt to bring light and, and offer critique about the system as it is. Uh, but very often those organized attempts have not been able to, to generate uh, momentum to really bring folks in and, and usher in this transformation that rap is dreaming of. Um, but that's what we are hopeful about in this movement. We are really hopeful that this is the right time. It's, we're in the right time, the right place with the right conditions and people around us to actually generate some of that, uh, some of that momentum. So as an entity that is, is attempting to provide some critique of, of the system as it is, that's one of the main places that we're focusing. We're pushing folks to, encouraging folks to really look at uh, your local community foundation and their operations from a more critical perspective. And if we can do that with our community foundations, then we can absolutely apply that same critical lens uh, to the upper echelons of, of that foundation uh, system. Um, but for example, I'll give you a real explicit example. One of the things that we're encouraging people across the country, practitioners across the country to do right now, is to look into their local community foundation stance on the ACE Act. Okay. And ACE stands for Accelerating Charitable, ooh, I'm spacing on what the E is in this moment. The ACE Act was introduced into Congress, I think in, I think in June. Uh, it is the first piece of proposed legislation that attempts to address tax law uh, f philanthropic tax law since I think it's 1960. A lot of that has to do with the fact that these entities have spent a lot of resources, a lot of money lobbying uh, to prevent uh, or to help ensure that these kinds of debates or conversations never make it uh, to the policy table. And so just as a starting point, I would encourage your listeners to get some information on the ACE Act uh, and then connect it to your local community foundation. Check out where your local community foundation stands on the ACE Act uh, and do some exploration about why. Where do they stand on it and why do, do they believe the way they are presenting about that? The ACE Act, um, on a functional level, uh, if passed, would essentially work to shift more of these resources, activate more of these resources by shifting them into the uh, the nonprofit space, actually distributing a lot of these assets that you describe currently being held and managed uh, through these donor advised funds and other similar philanthropic structures. Right, which is a lot of money and I don't wanna take anything away from it, but before we move on to how you help practitioners and, and how they can become involved more uh, on the ground, uh, just an acknowledgement, I think of, uh, despite the amount of money we're talking about that has been invested in tools like donor advised funds and community foundations and uh, other ways, um, the amount of wealth that's being transferred to companies and individuals that aren't making their way into traditional <laughs> <laughs> exactly. is, is accelerating faster still. 
still, right? While, while we look at the amount of money going into donor advice funds and go, wow, that's a lot of money that we're not sure how that's ever going to get spent out. And um, as you were speaking, I looked up that uh, um, accelerating charitable efforts is the E and ACE uh, to encourage uh, you know those organizations to actually have a plan for dispersing that money, to, to give them a time frame, to make them get it into community, to have some of that money get to work, um, I think is a, a good and important thing that we can be talking to philanthropy about while acknowledging that the majority of resources are still not even within what we would consider philanthropy. Uh, it's not stopping, you know, large scale individuals from um, moving some of that money into philanthropy or, or to otherwise reinvest it in, in folks that it was uh, extracted from. Mm -hmm. But um, acknowledging that, uh, and I don't know the current figures, but something along the lines of, you know, one, 1. 1.7, 1.8 trillion dollars since mm -hmm. the pandemic has gone into the hands of billionaires mm -hmm. um, that wasn't there before and just thinking about those kinds of numbers and say well yes we hold philanthropy uh, to account and we want to talk with them about this and we want to have these conversations about where are you on ace and how does that public statement impact you but mm -hmm. also uh, uh acknowledging that uh, the 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 larger portion of extraction is actually still happening within this larger private sector and mm -hmm. we we want to understand that full picture at least i think that's part of what i'm hearing you say mm -hmm. um in addition so if you have any thoughts on that i'd love to hear them but otherwise I'd, i'm happy to start talking a little bit more about how you support practitioners yeah, I'd love to get into talking about how we support practitioners. I think yeah. contextualizing the issues is very, very important. And there are so many directions that we can explore. I, I think we've just started to kind of scrape the, the top of, right. of, of some of that. Well, knowing that we have a limited amount of time and in all likelihood, Jeff Bezos is not listening, uh, let's move <laughs> on to uh, thinking about there are um, these extractive practices that have been going on for years. They're accelerating uh, in the private sector right now without um, you know, as much happening to reframe that. So knowing that those things are happening and that there are people who want to be reclamation practitioners out there versus you know, the, the sort of hat in hand fundraiser going, mm -hmm. gosh, dear person of, of largesse, would you please bestow us? Um, I think it's a different conversation, but it is, you know, back to your your earlier conversations about gift is a very uh, intentional conversation about how do we help people practice that idea uh, in, in the real world where there are some expectations of we're trying to meet a real community need and we do have goals to bring in some dollars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's the thing at the end of the day, the, the question that we face most often, uh, it's not been very challenging to leave fundraisers feeling inspired and empowered and motivated after we uh, we propose this shifting framework. Um, but very typically what follows next is how? Right. <laughs> that sounds great. How are we going to do it? <laughs> So yes, that's that's what folks want to know about is that that's a it's a beautiful and inspiring vision for for the folks that find their way to rap. Um, and what we really want to focus the the network that we are developing around is first beginning to identify and define those practices uh, and then also providing uh, the support and technical assistance to others 
uh, as they, they take on this transformative adventure. So um, one of the ways that we have done that to date has been a cohort program uh, that we offer. It's a two and a half month long program. Uh, at this point, it's only been virtual because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have graduated now three, uh, three cohorts of resource mobilizers. Uh, and so these are folks who, who go through our two and a half uh, month long program to learn our basic framework, uh, orient to our long term vision, and then jump right on in and begin contributing, uh, participating as, as we brainstorm uh, a pathway to that vision. So that's, um, that's been one of the most significant uh, ways that we have been begun to recruit. Uh, new emerging resource mobilizers. Another program that we are getting ready to take public is what we are calling uh, open office hours for resource mobilizers. And what we will attempt to do through that offering is to provide staffed uh, hours on our virtual campus where fundraisers and resource mobilizers can drop in Hmm. and provide uh, and actually receive one-on-one -on -one, uh, support, uh, essentially peer coaching around any immediate questions, concerns, challenges they may be engaging in their fundraising and resource mobilization work. Um, we are attempting to, to really create this, um, this active uh, virtual drop-in space uh, that that will become part of our uh, our networked approach, our collaborative approach to to beginning to 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 find some definition around the how uh, of doing this work. So I'm really intrigued by the cohort idea. In addition to this uh, more open office hours concept, along the lines of sometimes when you're the person working with your very important mission, you do feel very alone in this work. Mm -hmm. That the uh, executive director has got many many hats and may be the fundraiser on top of everything else, but you know the program staff is very pulled over here, and the board of directors is maybe absent over there, and it does feel isolating to try to hold these thoughts and go, am I, you know, is this the right um, a vector for us? Is this the, the way that we're going to engage community uh, and not have that peer support in smaller organizations, especially where there's probably not multiple people in a development office. So this is really interesting to me. If people hear about the cohort idea, are you still running those actively? Is that things people apply for or how do, how do they in, investigate that part? We are. Uh, so we are just getting ready to uh, start recruitment for our next cohort. Uh, and we are anticipating launching uh, by about mid-October, possibly yep. the end of, by the end of October. Um, and the best way to learn more about that and to access our application link is by visiting our website at www.com reclaimcommunitywealth.org uh, and we've got a, a link uh, on our website where you can go right to the resource mobilizer online lab. Um, you'll be able to learn more about the lab and the, the contents of that program uh, again as I said as well as accessing a, a link to submit an application for that.
Great. So we'll have that link in the show notes for people who uh, may be listening on a phone and didn't have a chance to write that down. Just open up the show notes in your podcast catcher and you can just link directly to it to get a look and, and understand more about how that goes. Um, is there a limit to the number of people? Do you just break into smaller groups if you have many? How, how do you make decisions about your own resources to train resource mobilizers? <laughs> that is a great question. Even as we're trying to organize and build out uh, our our work and, and this, this network of practitioners, uh, we are also simultaneously up against the resourcing challenges right. that uh, that any one of us are are up against every day and so um we uh it's a paid program and so uh full cost tuition is nine hundred dollars uh to participate in the cohort we have scholarships available and what we have done previously is that as a cohort each group has actually negotiated uh covering full cost uh, tuition for the entire cohort. And so mm. that's actually part of the program is negotiating amongst ourselves within the cohort, how we meet the full cost of the tuition. Um, the, and I, I would say that that's actually an example of how we are attempting to, to structure and operate the lab as much as possible actually doing uh, the work or practicing into the work as practitioners that we then take back to uh, to our home communities and organizations. So um, that's one way that we resource uh, our our efforts. We are, uh, again, just like most organizations and projects also uh, pursuing foundation support. Um, there are absolutely allied foundations and foundation partners that are looking to explore some of this work. And so um, we also have a, a handful of funding partnerships um, and are, are always looking to grow those. And then I'd, I'd also say that we have um, one of the other ways that to date we are fueling this work is that we take on uh, fee-for-service training Oh. Uh, opportunities with communities and organizations across the country. And so um, typically the way that that happens is we draw from cohort graduates to actually come back through and help train uh, or coach other emerging practitioners. And that's part of our leadership development model. Um, so those are those are the ways that we are primarily resourcing this work today. The um, as as you have already acknowledged, um, some of this programmatic work has taken shape around identifying uh, some of the most crushing dynamics of our work. And mm -hmm. uh, as you've described, oftentimes that one of those uh, top dynamics is that this work can feel very isolating. Yeah. Um, and so our vision around this programming is, is first and foremost to bring folks out of that isolation and then secondarily to cultivate the collaborative practices that, uh, that we believe will, will help us reclaim uh, the wealth back to our communities. Well, I, I'm hopeful that that will continue to build as more people. I like this idea of kind of um, 
taking on the challenge of how do we bring our own resources to do our own work together. And um, some of us can pay money, some of us will raise money other ways and bring it to the table so that those that have access to funds can use it and those that don't can still learn and be part of a community. Um, I do think that that isolation is, is such a challenging thing in this work for, for most smaller organizations. And perhaps it feels that way for larger teams too. I, I've not been part of a larger group effort like that. I've always worked in, in smaller efforts where um, the, the resource development is you know usually a person that maybe has meetings periodically with the rest of the team, but um, often not engaged. So that, that next opportunity of, you know, maybe you're not, you know, into the space to do a full cohort right now, um, but thinking about the office hours piece, how does how does that evolve? How does that get resourced? Uh, similarly, uh, so yeah. what we're doing is we are are working to to pull folks that go through our training and cohort program uh, through some leadership development to help facilitate to help hold those training and coaching spaces. Um, and the activation there is really oriented around preparing folks, again, to go back to their home communities, their home organizations, and actually have a developed skill set around activating their people. Um, the, you know, I've already acknowledged, but historically, our, our, one of our biggest primary challenges as fundraisers has been kind of getting over that, that hump the lack of inspiration around the charge to get out there and beg for money. Um, so that's our first biggest challenge. Our, our RAPS programming works to address uh, that, that individual practitioner challenge. Uh, but again, hopefully with some of the, the skills and practices and exercises that you acquire through our programming, you can go back to your workspaces uh, your home workspaces and and begin inspiring, uh, activating and motivating others around you. That historically has been the second biggest challenge for uh, a fundraising practitioner is how do I actually get the rest of my organization and my donors excited about helping me reach my goals? Yeah, I think that that framework of, uh, you know, not begging is really important. So getting to the main idea of wealth reclamation and, and understanding um, you're, you're not asking for somebody to give up something that was you know, sort of rightfully theirs and entitled for them to survive with, right? It's like you, you have extracted, you know, resources from a larger community that you have available to you. Now let's talk about how that can be equitably addressed and all the rest. I think that's a good framework, but the idea of also, I'm not begging you to do this, but rather, this is one way that you can participate in that more equitable distribution um, by being involved in our community this way. If you don't believe in our work, then right, you shouldn't be talking to us. And we should be talking about how um, other people that do believe in what we do should should be engaged. But it should never be, oh, please, please, you know, uh, you, you have to give even if you don't think that we're a good fit for who you are and all the rest. That, that framework, I think, really helps people feel a little bit more more comfortable in their own space. But it, again, getting past that isolation part of it, I think even the office hours, even just that dropping in to have a conversation with somebody can be so helpful. Um, and as I'm saying all this, I'm also looking at the clock going, oh my gosh, we're almost out of time. Um, <laughs> are, are there, uh, other than those two opportunities, are there other things you'd like to leave people with in, in how they continue to be involved um, in this broader mission of wealth reclamation and resource uh, uh, mobilizing rather than kind of the old frameworks that we used to think about? 
Absolutely. I, you know, I'd say just stay in touch. Uh, visit our website where you can sign up for our uh, monthly e-newsletter. And that's the best way to find out about what we've got going on, what we're cooking up. Um, you can also check us out on social media. We do have somewhat limited capacity, so our social media is not always uh, the most active, but it's typically a place we'll go to push out announcements about upcoming activities or opportunities. Uh, I would most definitely say that our e-newsletter is going to be the best, uh, the best way for now to stay informed uh, about any upcoming opportunities. Great. So again, we'll have that link in the show notes for uh, folks to take a look at and uh, just very excited about everything that you're putting forward. I know that it's challenging to herd all of the cats around uh, social good because so many of us are um, feeling pulled in, uh, in many directions and not always taking the time to tend to ourselves as practitioners. Uh, and I, I really appreciate you giving a framework to people to feel more like you, you're not alone. You can have support in this work, um, you will probably in all likelihood be more successful and stay in it longer if you have that support and connection to other people. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's good for the sector to have you doing what you're doing, let alone, I think, for everyone else. So um, that being said, I, I, I do have to wrap us up. So I just want to uh, say uh, thank you so much, Veronica, for all of your time today. Uh, Veronica is the lead organizer for the Wealth Reclamation Academy of Practitioners. Again, thanks for your time. Thanks so much again for having us, Steve. You take good care. 